Welcome back to Part C to my commentary on Parashat Shmini. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we have been discussing some commonly um, used passages utilized by um, those within Christian circles to supposedly teach that the dietary laws outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 as well as Deuteronomy chapter um, fifth, uh, chapter 14 have been abrogated by certain New Testament passages. We've already looked at Mark chapter 7 involving Jesus and the Pharisees. Now let's turn our attention to a very well-known passage in the book of Acts. This is Peter's vision as outlined for us in Acts chapter 10. And this becomes again a central hermeneutic passage uh, wielded by opponents of the Leviticus 11 definitions of food. That is to say people who approach this text with the idea that Leviticus 11 is being uprooted in the biblical definition of what is food and the biblical definition of what is not food use this Acts chapter 10 passage as proof that God has no longer designated clean and unclean respectively when it comes to food. Okay, With that approach in mind, let's go to the text and see exactly what's happening. Let's start in my commentary on the top of page 10. Um, we're about halfway through our commentary. It's 20 pages long, and so I'm, I'm in easily envisioning four parts to this audio. Okay, This next section is entitled Peter and the Vision. In Acts chapter 10, we find an interesting story involving a Jewish man and his commitment to only eat kosher food. I shall paraphrase the passage to conserve space. Okay, you ready? Here's the paraphrase. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a non-Jew, yet a devout God-fearer, the Greek is phobeotheos, is instructed in a vision by an angel of God to send for Simon Peter, Shimon Kepha, to come to his house in Caesarea. The next day in Joppa, Kepha, a Jewish fisherman, also has a vision from Hashem concerning a four-cornered sheet, some people call it a talit, containing all manner of animals on it. He is instructed three times to, quote, rise, kill, and eat, end quote. All three times he refuses, explaining that he will not eat something treif, which is literally torn, not fit for consumption, for he has remained kosher all his life. Hashem tells him not to call common, the Greek term koinao, what he, God, has cleansed, the Greek word katarizo, the vision fades. The term, by the way, common and cleansed, is rendered from the KJV. Meanwhile, Cornelius has sent men to inquire of Kepha, who eventually accompanies them back to their master. A fairly well-sized mix of at least one Jew and many non-Jews gathered together as Kepha met in Cornelius' home later on. Kepha explained that, that it was not lawful, the Greek term athamitos, for Jews to schmooze, that is to mingle with non-Jews. However, Hashem had instructed him, Kepha, not to consider non-Jews as unclean, the Greek term is akathartos, or common, the Greek term is koinos. Indeed, Kepha proclaims that now he understands, after hearing Cornelius' vision account, that Hashem is, quote, no respecter of persons, end quote. That's from the KJV. The good news that Yeshua can and will save Jew as well as non-Jew is made clear to everyone in the room. To be sure, 
as Kepha is speaking, suddenly the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, falls on all of them which heard the word. That's the KJV's rendering of it. The chapter portion ends with the men being immersed, which is the last halakhic step normally associated with conversion to Judaism, and they are immersed into the name of Adonai. Okay, that's an interesting passage. There's my summarization of it. Let's exegete this passage as diligent biblical students. Firstly, with the help of Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, the TSBD, <clears throat> we must take special notice of the Greek words that I wove into the English commentary above. Now, for this chart, or for this list that you're about to see, the bulleted words, there's about six terms there. Um, the Strong's number precedes the Greek word. Okay, you ready? In no particular order. Greek, uh, I'm sorry, Strong's number fi uh, 5399 is phobeo, coupled with theos um, equals fearer of God. It's a noun, masculine, in essence, that means God fear. I didn't define the word theos there. I didn't give you the Greek number. I should have. Um, maybe I'll go back and correct that in my commentary at a later date. The next Greek word is Strong's number 2840, koinao. It's a verb, um, and it means to make common, to make Levitically unclean, render unhallowed, defile, profane. The next Greek word is Strong's number 2839, um, koinos. It's an adjective. It is defined as common, in essence, ordinary, belonging to generality by the Jews, unhallowed, profane. The next word is Strong's number 2511, katarizo. It's a verb. It means to make clean, cleanse, consecrate, dedicate, purify morally or ritually. The next word is Strong's number 111, is athamitas. It's an adjective, and it's defined as contrary to law and justice, illicit, in essence, taboo. And the final word on my list there is Strong's number 169, akathartos. It's an adjective, and it means unclean, ceremonially, that which must be abstained from according to Levitical law, or foul. Okay, with those words uh, in our arsenal, let's turn now to the text and see what we can find out. Well, I must say, actually, even though the above-supplied words and definitions come to us from the TSBD, which, again, is a well-respected and well-trusted um, lexiconic aid, um, and, and the TSBD itself is key to the large Kittle and the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the TWNT, we, the readers, must allow context to help us sort out the proper applications of the nuances and ways in which the words impact our understanding of the passage. In other words, just because we've got the dictionary and the lexicon in front of us doesn't mean that we are now guaranteed that we're going to understand what the passage means. Context is king, and context will help us to sort out the differing nuances and the interaction between the words that we just described. All right. For this next exercise, a series of questions and answers should help accomplish this goal of uh, understanding the passage. So, I'm just going to make up an imaginary questioner and an imaginary answerer. In reality, I wrote the questions and I wrote the answers. But the questions stem from common approaches to the text, and the answers are my own answers. So, in the question round, <clears throat> you could say that I am your standard um, biblical theologian, whether he be Jew or Gentile, anyone who reads the text 
is um, fair game to understanding or misunderstanding the text. I'm not going to um, say that Gentiles and Christians are the only ones who misunderstand this passage. I will, however, um, uh, imply that the historic Christian church, of which many Gentiles uh, feel themselves belong, um, are the ones who normally wield the, 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 the tone um, of the questions that I'm going to be um, supporting, okay? Or the questions that I'm going to be supplying. So, let's just ju dive right in. <clears throat> Question. Is Cornelius described as a Jew or something else in the passage? And does it matter? <laughs> That's an interesting question, isn't it? Is he a Jew or is he a Gentile? Does it matter? Answer. Cornelius is described as a God-fearing non-Jew in Italian, a man who held a good report among all the nation of the Jews. It matters because according to the prevailing halakha of the day, non-Jews were not understood to be permitted to follow Torah. I might also add that today, most of rabbinic Judaism toes the standard party line that teaches that the Torah is for Jews only. Uh, comparatively, most of Christianity toes that same party line. Isn't that interesting? Thus, the Torah was a Jewish-only document. What is more, if a non-Jew wished to gain covenant status among Israel, he or she must convert to Judaism first. Thus, the Halakha stated, quote, All Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come, end quote. The footnote number four there on the page 11 <clears throat> um, advises you, the reader, uh, for more on this topic, see my commentary to Shomer Mitzvot Introduction to the Series at the link graftedin.com slash images slash parashot 00 Shomer Mitzvot intro.pdf. Um, it talks about that term, all Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come, and more on that, um, on that view. Question, is Peter a Jew? <laughs> Answer, of course he is. He's not a learned Jew, like uh, the likes of Shaul, but he is a Jew, nonetheless. Question, where would Kepha get the chutzpah to tell Hashem, quote, Not so, Lord, in regards to him being commanded to rise, kill, and eat all manner of four-footed beasts on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and fowls of the air? Did you understand my question? God commands Peter to do something. And Peter answers back to God, No? Sounds like Ezekiel when God told him to eat um, unclean things as well. <clears throat> But isn't it interesting? We have the person who's being challenged by the very God of the Torah himself. We have this person utilizing the Torah as their authority for disobeying God or, or uh, challenging God's command. Let's look at the answer. Answer. Perhaps Kepha was familiar with our passage in Leviticus chapter 11 as well as Deuteronomy chapter 16. There's a typo there that says Deuteronomy 16. It should say chapter, um, should say chapter 14 change that. Okay. Um, question. Why does Kepha make the dual distinction of, quote, common and or unclean, end quote, foods in verse 14, rendered from the KJV? In other words, why does Kepha say, I've never eaten anything common or unclean? Um, what do these words convey in their original languages? All right. It's a dual uh, distinction. Why didn't he simply say, I've never eaten anything common? I'll leave it at that. Or why didn't he say, I've never eaten anything unclean, and leave it at that? Why does he pull into his answer both terms, common and or unclean? All right, here's a longer answer. And in this longer answer, we're going to start unlocking the meaning to the passage. In reality, what we're going to find is that Peter himself 
defines what the passage means with the help of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to do is go back to the language that the passage was preserved for us in. I'm not suggesting that Peter spoke Greek at this point. I don't believe he did. Rather, I, and I'm not saying it's impossible that he he did. He, he could have, but um, it's, it's more likely that he spoke Hebrew or Aramaic or something like that. But in reality, the passage as recorded for us by Luke has been preserved in Greek, and in the Greek preservation, the Greek words that Luke chooses to fill in for what Peter might be saying in, in Hebrew uh, bear uh, an importance for our study. <clears throat> Answer. Common, the word common, in the English verse of 14, is the Greek word koinos. It refers to biblically defined and permitted food, that is, say, beef, chicken, lamb, etc., that has been rendered profane, for instance, by contact with that which the Bible forbids and does not define as food, i.e., pork, shellfish, shrimp, buzzard, spiders, mouse, etc. To get it there, koinos is biblical food that has been rendered common by contact with either biblical food that was already unclean or items that the Torah already defines as non-food. Okay, it's the, the contact is the, uh, uh, the point of importance there. <clears throat> the force of this word koinos in the Greek, when compared to akathartos, is that koinos connotes that which man declares unclean, whereas akathartos connotes a God-given declaration of uncleanness. And I'll explain as I get down further into the passage. This Greek word koinos is not found in the Septuagint, uh, the LXX, the reading of Leviticus chapter 11. If you were to take Leviticus 11 go back to the Greek, the Septuagint, it doesn't use the word uh, koinos. The Greek version of the Tanakh is what we're talking about. Kepha cannot, um, in, in understanding Kepha's answer to, to Hashem, he cannot comply with the Lord's request. Why? Because the sheet clearly contains both food and non-food items, of which the food items have now been declared by himself, Peter, as contaminated or common, koinos, by contact with the non-food items. In other words, look at, look at Kepha's um, answer again, as rendered from the KJV, quote, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean, end quote. Dual distinctions to food. Peter recognizes that there are dual distinctions that we can apply to food. And now that our definition of food complies with what the Bible calls food, we can better understand the term common. All right. Now, the English term unclean in this verse... All right. I've never eaten anything, anything that is common or unclean. The English term unclean in this verse is the Greek word akathartos. Now this word akathartos is a composite of the article a, the a there, plus the word katairo. Now katairo means, quote, to cleanse of filth or impurity. And the article a or a is used to negate the meaning, that is, give the opposite significance. Thus, akathartos means unclean. All right, and that's according to uh, Thayer's and Smith's Bible dictionary on the word um, kateiro, as well as akathartos. However, this time when we read the uh, the phrase um, akathartos, we do have the equivalent Hebrew term of this word showing up in the Septuagint version of Leviticus 11. Isn't that neat? 
everywhere the Hebrew word Tameh, remember we talked about that in part 1 or part A, everywhere the Hebrew word Tameh is found, the Septuagint chooses its Greek equivalent, Akathartos. To fully grasp Kepha's choice of wording here, we must understand that a Jewish definition of applying akathartos to that which the Torah describes as non-food stems from the conclusion that Hashem created certain animals intrinsically tameh, that is unclean, and others intrinsically tahor, that is clean. This is not a defect in the animals themselves that some animals are intrinsically unclean and others are intrinsically clean. That's not a defect of the animals. This speaks rather of the superior intellect of a creator that is in control over the ecosystem that he created. Alright? Some animals ingest harmful items. Well, let me back up. Some animals ingest helpful items and consequently produce toxins. Other creatures ingest toxins and consequently produce helpful waste in its place. Obviously, I'm describing biological symbiosis, right? Even if we argue against this logic, saying, well, argue, Ariel, I'm a scientist, I'm a biologist. I don't see this, this to be true everywhere in God's creation. No, 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 Ariel. Your, your facts are wrong. Your data is, is, is incorrect. Um, and therefore, your um, um, interpretation of the passage is flawed. Well, even if we argue against the logic that I'm describing based on our lack of understanding, which I'm allowing to say that I, might have, I, I do have a lack of understanding in this topic as, as far as biology, and, and things like that. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no biologist. I'm not a subject matter expert there. But even if we argue against this logic, we cannot argue that God told Noah, Noah to gather two of each kind of every unclean animal into the ark while also commanding him to collect seven couples of the clean animals. Right? Look at Genesis 7, verse 1 through 3. Quote, Adonai said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone in this generation are righteous before me. Of every clean animal you are to take seven couples, and of the animals that are not clean, one couple. Also of the birds of the air, take seven couples in order to preserve their species throughout the earth. End quote. Well, there you have it, right there in the Bible. How are we to argue that clean and unclean is only related to the Torah that Moshe handed down when Noah lived thousands of years prior to any written Torah that we know of? We can't have it both ways. The argument is pointless then. We can't say, well, Noah knew because of the Torah that the Jews had, but the Torah didn't get written down until Moses, uh, but God didn't create animals clean and unclean until the Torah, but, but yet Noah knew... No, see, it, it's, an, it's a pointless argument there. God knew which animals were clean and which were unclean. Why? Because he made them that way. And he obviously endowed Noah with a way to tell. That's where we have to leave the argument. That's exactly what the text is telling us. Whether or not we can fully grasp and understand how Noah knew is, is immaterial. Noah knew because God knew. All right? And how did God know? Because God made them that way. That's the conclusion we have to come to. All right. Next question. When Hashem responds to Kepha's refusal, he only instructs Kepha not to call common, the Greek word koinao, that which he, God, has cleansed, the Greek word katharizo. Why doesn't Hashem also teach Kepha not to call unclean, akathartos, that which God has ostensibly also cleansed, katharizo? Did you understand my question? In other words, God only 
um, corrects one of Kepha's terms. Peter says, I've never eaten anything common, koinos, or unclean, akathartos. But God only responds to the term koinos. God does not respond to Kepha's use of the term akathartos. That's my question. Here's my answer. Obviously, God is not cleansed, kataridzo, those animals that he created to be intrinsically unclean, akathartos. That's the answer. That unlocks the meaning of the passage. If I, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, the author of this commentary, could convey this single important point to your average Christian pastor, then we would not be having this conversation at all. Don't you agree? If I could just get my Christian friends to understand that God is responding to one of Peter's terms and not the other, then a careful distinction can be made behind the meaning of both Peter's misunderstanding and God's correction of Peter's misunderstanding. The Levitical definition of permitted and forbidden animals, as outlined in chapter 11, cannot change based on the hermeneutic principle that God remains the same both yesterday, today, and forever. Why would he need to change the rules governing the definition of food with the arrival of his son? It's a rhetorical question. It makes nonsense to support such a rendering and a reading of Acts chapter 10. And yet, unfortunately, that's exactly the commentaries that we read on Acts chapter 10 in your average Christian bookstore. Now again, I pick on Christians now because most Jewish people do not write commentaries to Acts chapter 10. The synagogue does not concern themselves with the apostolic writings. No, this is primarily a Christian-only debate. But, but when I use the term Christian there, I'm also including Messianics, we Jews who have embraced Messiah. So, it makes nonsense to support such a reading of Acts chapter 10 after we dig deeper into the Greek words behind um, uh, the rendering of Acts chapter 10. To be sure, if God were supposedly changing the rules, okay, let's just suppose God were changing the rules, alright? Let's entertain that notion for a moment. You think giving the information to a country bumpkin like Kepha, in a vision no less, is the, is the right way to do it? No, I would say that it's the wrong way to go about doing it. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I called Kepha a country bumpkin. In Jewish terms or Yiddish terms, he's a guter yid. He, he knows what he knows because he was raised that way. Not necessarily knows what he knows because he studied it out or knows what he knows because he's got a higher learning um, degree under his belt. Um, in other words, Shaul would be the counterpart to Kepha. Kepha's just kind of a good... A good old country boy and does what he does because he was raised that way. And Kepha is like your college graduate who's got a match, master's degree in, in the topics that he studies. All right, that's not to say that one is better than the other. I'm just I'm just describing the um, the uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for the education level of, of of the two. A fisherman of 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 the first century was not known to be an educated man. All right. And Kepha is a fisherman. Nothing wrong with that. All right. And anyway, um, if God were trying to change the rules of Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter um, 14, why would he give it to Peter, first of all, <laughs> knowing Peter's profession, and two, and even more to the point, why would he do it in a vision? doesn't make sense. All right. Um, 
we should not suppose that this is a mystery hidden from the Jewish people only now to be revealed after a son has gone to the execution stake. You know what I mean by mystery there? Mysterion. The Greek term refers to um, a mystery that was formerly hidden yet now revealed for the sake of um, uh, continuing revelation or continuing um, prophecy. Uh, and it's being revealed because the uh, the times are now at hand that God has determined that the mystery is to be revealed. All right, That mystery is true when it comes to the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are now to be welcomed into Israel's full-fledged covenant members if they place their trust in Yeshua. That is the mystery of the gospel. That's true. That's something that was hidden from the Jewish people as a whole only to be revealed to Paul later on and to the rest of the Jerusalem council. However, what we have, what the, what's taking place here to Peter is not necessarily a, the mystery of Kashrut, is what I'm trying to say. It is, in fact, related to the mystery of the gospel that I just described above. So, don't get confused. Question. If Hashem is not cleansing, katharizo, unclean, akathartos animals, then what exactly is he cleansing? How are we to understand the vision? In other words, Hashem says, Peter, don't referred to as common, koinos, that which I have cleansed, kataero, uh, okay? Kataridzo, um, I'm sorry. That which I have cleansed. Did you know that the word kataridzo um, is related to our English word cauterize? When we clean a wound, we cauterize it. We clean a wound. That's where the Greek word kataridzo, cauterize, you hear it in there? Um, God is basically telling Peter that he's cleansing something. He's cauterizing something. And he's cauterizing that which Peter refers to as koinos, or common. So, how are we to understand the vision, and how are we to understand Hashem's answer? If he's not cleansing that which is akathartos, that which is intrinsically unclean, but only cleansing that which is koinos, that which is common, then what does the vision mean? Alright, answer. I personally believe that Kepha's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important interpretation offered. Let me just pause and let that sink in for a moment. We, in the later emerging Torah communities, which would include the church, obviously, come along and supposedly teach that our interpretation of Peter's vision is that the dietary laws have been lifted. And yet, in that explanation, we conveniently ignore, and you can hear the, uh, the, um, um, you can hear the um, sarcasm in my voice, we conveniently ignore... Peter's own definition and interpretation of his vision. Hello? Something's wrong there. Alright? Peter was puzzled about the vision at first, to be sure. That's what the text tells us. And yet we come along and say, clearly, this Acts chapter 10 refers to the, um, the lifting of the dietary restrictions. Clearly? How can we be so bold as to say that? When Peter himself didn't fully understand. If it was clear to Peter, how come he didn't just go... Duh! I get it! Oh, God! You're lifting the dietary restrictions as outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter um, 14. Duh! I get it, God! It's so simple. Why didn't I figure it out? Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't respond that way. In fact, the text tells us that Peter was troubled for a while. But only after the Holy Spirit gave him the object lesson behind the vision, that is, the men who come to visit Peter and his subsequent visit to Cornelius' home, which we're going to read about here in a moment. Only after then does Peter make the connection and, and bring the vision and its meaning um, to, to light. 
Peter then confesses, oh, I get it. This isn't about food. It's about people. So let's read that, all right? Um, I personally, let me start with the answer again. I personally believe that Kepha's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important op- interpretation offered, namely this. What Hashem has designated as kosher, that is, say, fit for consumption, and treif, not fit for consumption, in the Torah of Moshe, excuse me, in the Torah of Moshe, concerning food, still remains clean, tahor, and unclean, tameh, respectively. Although the sheet contained all manner of animals, I believe what Hashem is trying to get Kepha to understand is that the animals represent all manners of peoples, not the literal animals themselves. This interpretation is in accord with the unchangeable nature of Hashem, and to be sure, is this not how Kepha interprets the vision himself in verses 28, verse 34, and verse 35? All right, let's read those verses. Verse 28 of chapter uh, 10 of Acts. Quote, He said to them, He is Peter, and them is the, um, of the Gentiles, to include Cornelius. He said to them, quote, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. End quote. Here's verse 11. Then Kepha addresses them, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him no matter what people he belongs to. End quote. Emphasis mine. Those are from David Stern's CJB. All right? Do you see how Peter defines the vision, how Peter interprets the vision, and in Peter's interpretation, he does not give the same interpretation that modern Christian scholars apply to the vision? Do you think there's something wrong then with our modern interpretation of the vision if it does not square with Peter's interpretation of the vision? I would think so. Question. But I thought that the Torah forbade Jews from having contact with Gentiles. Isn't isn't that what Kiva explicitly tells his Gentile associates in verse 28, which you quoted above? Good question. Now we're going to move into a second aspect of the meat of what Peter's trying to um, convey in his interpretation. All right. Um, It is true that he did say that that or or he he said that it's unlawful, but we have to look at that. All right. I now turn in an effort to answer this part of my question to. Ten varying versions of the same verse. Okay, observe Acts ten twenty-eight in ten various yet common English translations, where the original Greek word athamitas has been identified and understood in each version. Now, just to refresh you, the word athamitas. If we go back up to our table, there, turn backwards in my commentary. Uh, on um, the bottom of page 10 and the top of page 11, um, the second to the last one, Strong's number 111, athamitas is an adjective defined as, quote, contrary to law and justice, illicit, in essence, taboo. All right, that's athamitas. All right, that's what, Paul, that's what Peter um, utilizes in the Greek when the phrase unlawful is rendered in the um, English, athamitas. All right, let's read each version um, highlighting the Greek word that's been translated into its English receptor, and then at the end of that we'll do uh, an analysis. 
The first one is the New American Standard Bible, the NESB. It reads, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful, there's our word, our Greek word there, unlawful, it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should call that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. The God's Word translation, the GWT, reads this way. He said to them, You understand how wrong, the word wrong there, underlined in my written commentary, is the Greek word athamitas. You understand how wrong it is for a Jewish man to associate or visit with anyone of another race. But God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. Next on our list is the KJV, King James. And he said unto them, Ye know that it is an unlawful thing, the phrase unlawful thing, there is our Greek term, athamitas, for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto, come unto one of another nation. But God that showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. The authorized stand, I'm sorry, the American Standard Version, the ASV, reads this way. And he said unto them, Ye yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing, that phrase unlawful thing is athamitas, uh, for a man that is a Jew to join himself or come unto one of another nation, and yet unto me God hath showed that I should not call any man common or unclean. The BBE, the Bible in basic English, reads this way, And he said to them, You yourselves have knowledge that it is against the law. The phrase against the law is our Greek phrase, uh, Greek term, athamitas. It is against the law for a man who is a Jew to be in the company of one who is of another nation. But God has made it clear to me that no man may be named uncommon or unclean. The DBY, Darby Bible Translation, reads this way, and he said to them, Ye know how it is unlawful, the word unlawful there is athamitas in Greek, for a Jew to be joined or come to one of a strange race. And to me, God has shown to call no man common or unclean. Next we have uh, Weymouth New Testament, W-E-Y. He said to them, You know better than most that a Jew is strictly forbidden, the term strictly forbidden is athamitas, to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has taught me to call no one unholy or unclean. Next we have the Webster Bible translation, the W-B-S. It reads this way, And he said to them, Ye know that it is an, an unlawful thing. The word unlawful thing there is athamitas. For a man that is a Jew to keep company or come to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Next we have the World English Bible, the W-E-B. It reads this way. He said to them, You yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing. The word unlawful thing there is athamitas. For a man who is a Jew to join himself or come to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. And then finally in this list, we have the YLT, Young's Literal Translation, which reads this way. And he said unto them, Ye know how it is unlawful. The word unlawful there, athamitas. For a man, a Jew, to keep company with or to come unto one of another race. But to me, God did show to call no man common or unclean. Okay. Now, isn't it interesting that from ten English translations, all but three of them up there, render our Greek word as unlawful? Those three are the GWT, the BBE, and the WEY. They, however, attempt to supply a slightly different nuance than unlawful to this word, an attempt I call commendable, by the way. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to slam any version of the Bible. That is far from 
the purpose of this exercise in bringing out all these translations. What is more, each translation in its own way conveys part of the proper um, uh, the proper understanding or proper um, uh, translation from the original Greek. I'm not saying that they're completely off base. However, what I am saying is that the um, translator's job is to capture not only the meaning of the word, but the nuance of the word. And sometimes words can have different nuances. And in this case, if you're not familiar with either the Greek nuance and or its corresponding Hebrew nuance, then you'll fail to render that into a receptor language. In fact, I, I'm often um, confronted with messianics who say, well, yeah, of course those translations are biased because they're, they're, they're translated from a Greek mindset. And what they mean by the term Greek there is a pejorative um, label against Christians who have no um, earthly idea what Hebraic mindset is. Therefore, um, people who make those statements about said Christians are usually looking down their nose at those very same Christians um, due to the lack of Hebraic understanding that those Christians supposedly um, don't have. Um, a, a Hebraic understanding that these very same Messianics supposedly do possess. I'm not going to be one of those types of Hebraics who looks down my nose at my Christian brothers who don't have a proper Hebraic understanding. We're all in a learning phase. Neither None of us has arrived, and we're all growing. So let's just grow up and exercise a little bit of grace and forgiveness towards our brothers for the things that uh, we are learning, okay? And for the things that we stumble over. But in this scenario where we have Messianics versus Christians, it's, I, I'm, um, I'm often confronted by Messianics who say, well, Ariel, you need to read a Hebraic version like the True Name version or the Scriptures or David Cern's version, people who, are, who translate the Bible with a Hebraic mindset, and then you'll have a proper understanding of verses like this. Really? Well, then let's turn to the Scriptures and see what they have to say. The Scriptures, a popular version among Messianics, leaves room for questioning the real intent of the translators. Let's read the Scriptures here. Quote, and he said to them, You know that a Yehudite man is not allowed, the word not allowed, there is our Greek term, athamitas, um, is not allowed to associate with or to go to one of another race. But Elohim has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. End quote. You see, the, the, the uh, scriptures in this case don't do any better. They still leave the term athamitas um, ambiguous. Uh, uh, as to try and figure out what it's referring to, you know, in the nuance form. It's not allowed. Not allowed by what? By man or by God? The scriptures didn't tell me. Therefore, in this case, I'm actually going to stick with David Stern's version. All right? The Greek word, athamitas, found in only two places in the apostolic scriptures, I might add, only here in Acts 10.28, and additionally in 1 Peter 4.3, is a composite of two Greek words. Now, again, the word tisemi, meaning, quote, to set, put, place, set forth, establish, uh, is the first part of the, or, or is part of the word athamitas. It's, uh, so we got the word tisemi. And then again, we have the article A, the letter A, which is pronounced a, a plus tisemi, thus athamitas. Um, the, the, uh, the article renders the word tisemi into its negative value. Again, that's according to um, Thayer's and Smith's Bible dictionary under the word athamitas. Thus, athamitas does convey the notion of quote-unquote unlawful. But we should carefully note that if Kiefer were wanting us to understand that such a prohibition were rooted in the written word of God, the Torah, 
then he would have or should have used a conjugation of the Greek word namas, which normally refers to God's Torah. To be sure, our writer Luke uses anamas, which is a, the Greek article, plus namas, in Acts 2.28, which is rendered wicked in KJV and godless in the New American Standard Bible. Okay, Godless. And, and what it's referring to in those verses is those men who crucified Yeshua, they are wicked men. They are godless men. They are anamas men. The um, uh, TSBD, uh, the Bible Dictionary, defines the adjective anamas as, quote, destitute of the Mosaic law, departing from the law, a violator of the law, lawless, wicked, end quote. That's anamas, according to the TSBD. Now, um... Again, my point is, by comparison, the adjective athamitas refers to that which, although not written down, is simply socially unacceptable, viz. taboo, but certainly not proscribed by Mosaic law. It's not forbidden by Mosaic law. That's why David Stern's CJB, or his um, Jewish New Testament, whichever one you have there, they're the same, same translation, his, David's, his, his, his CJB is a better translation of this Pasuk. Let's read the verse again out of David Stern's version. Quote, He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. That phrase there, something that just isn't done, is the Greek term athamitas. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. End quote. Again, um, if you'd like a thorough treatment of Stern's reasoning behind his translation of this verse, I recommend his Jewish New Testament commentary to this passage, which is found on pages 258 and 259, where he explains, uh, more or less, how I just explained uh, why athamitas um, should be rendered not as unlawful like it is in most English translations, but rather as um, taboo or socially unacceptable. The Torah of Moshe never prohibits Jews from quote-unquote keeping company or quote-unquote coming unto one of another nation, just like Peter said. It doesn't do it. This statement of Kepha's reflects not the written word of God, but rather what I call, quote, the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism baggage that the Torah communities of his day had engineered. Baggage not uncommon among people groups who are also marginalized, like ancient Israel was in the first century. Okay, Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. Um, covenantal gnomism. It's the idea of Jewish nationalism that suggests that all Jews and only Jews are chosen or acceptable by God uh, by the very nature of their ethnicity alone. That is to say, uh, being born to a, a, a people group, um, an ethnicity, uh, the Jewish people. And so, in other words, Kefal was, was, was really just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day. Now, even though he was doing that when he said, oh no, you've, you've heard that it's uh, uh, for Jewish people to have contact with Gentiles is, is something that's just not done. This did not excuse his error, which is why Hashem went through all the trouble to send him the vision in the first place. Kefal, you're wrong in in, in that estimation of non-Jewish peoples. And that's what the vision is designed to do, is to correct Kepha's errant theology. In the end, the message of the Axton vision is crystal clear. Here it is. 
I say crystal clear there only after we've done our, our, our structural analysis and our careful exegesis. Beyond that, it is very difficult to figure out. But here's the message. Gentiles in Yeshua are not intrinsically, intrinsically unclean. Gentiles are not akathartos, as the first century Judaisms were professing. They, Gentiles, like all men, have been created in God's image, and as such can be viewed as defiled koinos by the stain of sin in need of cleansing, katharizo. Man, created clean, fell into a state of unclean koinos, later to be declared cleansed, katharizo, by the blood of the sacrificial lamb of God. In other words, to use the language of the vision, Jews are not lambs while Gentiles are pigs. Okay, if we were to just jump back in to the metaphors of the animals. Jews are not lambs while Gentiles are pigs. Rather, Jews and Gentiles are both lambs. You see? Both have become unclean, koinos, by sin. Both have been cleansed, katharizo, by Yeshua. No one is intrinsically unclean, akathartos. No one was created sinful. That's the whole point. Born into sin? Yes. Created sinners? No. Everything that God created was good. Man fell. Okay? And it was, in fact, man's um, dilemma. It was man's fault. And God's solution is the Messiah. But when man was created, and all men share the DNA of Adam, we would agree, right? We all stem from Adam. No one, there's, no, there's only one race in the world today, and it's the human race. And we all stem from the human being called Adam. Therefore, in that association with Adam, we are all, both Jews and Gentiles, created clean, but we're born into sin. We inherit the sinful nature. All right, We are born into sin. We are not created sinners. Kepha's assessment, which was the standard Jewish song and dance, that the Gentiles were to be avoided, was wrong from the word go. And that's why the vision was sent in the first place. People, I want you to understand, as you're listening to my commentary today, this becomes a central theme of the apostolic scriptures, particularly in the way that Paul writes his letters. Um, you're going to find this theme of the, of the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism uh, being challenged in Paul's letters to Galatians, Romans, um, Ephesians, and now we're seeing it here in Acts as well. Because the whole first century social dilemma as seen through the eyes of your standard Jewish person was this. What do we do with the Gentiles? That's the social dilemma in the first century as seen through the eyes of a standard Jewish person. That's why God had to send visions like this. That's why God had to recommission Paul on the road to Damascus to explain to him that he needs to take the good news, the gospel, to the Gentiles in the same manner that the Jewish people were receiving the good news of Yeshua. It all stems from our familiarity today with what the term covenantal nomism and Jewish exclusivism um, mean as uh, related to the first century Judaisms. If we fail to grasp that hermeneutic principle, then we will forever misunderstand the apostolic scriptures, and particularly Paul. So I'm telling you right now, over uh, through this podcast, please get it within your minds to understand this concept, all right? Gentiles, going back to my commentary now, are to be accepted as bona fide Israelites without 
having to succumb to any man-made conversion rites. Again, in the language of the vision, all right, this is going to sound really funny. Pigs, an unclean animal, viz. Tamei Akathartos, do not need to become lambs, a clean animal, viz. Tahor Katairo, in order to be accepted into Israel. Did you get that? The pigs don't have to become lambs in order to be accepted, because that's really what the Jewish people of their day were saying of those pigs, of which the pigs were identified as the Gentiles. Actually, they were identified as dogs and cockroaches, but we're just going to use pigs because people don't eat dogs and cockroaches. But people do eat pigs. What is more, Gentiles in Yeshua are to be treated as cleansed, katharizo, in every sense of the word. Okay? No longer should the Jewish believers view them with suspect. And this really was the problem in the first century to begin with. The whole notion of covenantal gnomism, Jewish nationalism, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, the common um, um, prevailing uh, rabbinic halakha that taught that all Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come, and that if a Gentile wished to join the Jewish people, then he had to change his ethnic status into something that he was not born with, like the Jews. That's the whole problem facing the first century Judaism. In fact, let me just couch it in this language, all right? If you, the 21st century Christian student, listening to my podcast today, if you can wrap your mind around what I'm about to say next, you will not fail to begin to grasp the um, central meaning behind much of what Paul writes and uh, really the central meaning of this passage here in uh, Acts chapter 10. Okay? The first century Judaisms had engineered a teaching that believed that all Jews and only Jews were righteous forensically and ultimately behaviorally. And in this, um, this room, this exclusive club, Gentiles were not allowed in. There was no room for Gentiles. The Gentiles were the pigs in, um, in my uh, little illustration with the animals and the food. And in order for a pig to be acceptable in God's eyes, said the first century Judaisms, you must first become a lamb. Well, how do I become a lamb, said the pig. I'm glad you asked, said the lamb. Bada bing, bada boom. You know, <laughs> um, snip snip, and you're a lamb. In other words, we're talking about the ritual of conversion. And in the proselyte conversion process, l pigs ostensibly were... Now, again, keep in mind, we're not talking about the animals. We're talking about the people. I'm just using the language of the vision. But pigs were stripped from their original, intrinsic state of being unclean, akathartos, and now were seen to be um, clean. Katairo. And in becoming clean, um, they... They, like any other lamb, had to now deal with the issue of um, koinos from time to time becoming uh, ritually defiled as you, uh, you know, moved in and out of everyday living. But don't worry, because you're a lamb, you can always be restored to a state of purity. But that was the big problem in the first century. Okay, it was not some some uh, uh, supposed problem of of how much. Torah should we allow the Gentiles to keep? That's just nonsense. That's that's an invention made up by later Christian theologians who um, have a problem understanding Paul. Now, what's really going on is, um, again, the first century problem as seen through the eyes of a first century Jew was that the Gentiles 
are are problematic because they are Gentiles. And the only way we can deal with them is to turn them into Jews, and then we can get them to begin to walk out the Torah and things like that. So going back to my commentary here, what Hashem is trying to get Peter to understand in this vision is that the Jewish believers can no longer view Gentile believers as suspect because both have been rendered clean, katharizo, in Messiah. They have both been cleansed by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, not the sacrificial pig. You get it there? Okay. The sociological borders of Israel have been expanded to make room for those whom God is calling out from the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, into his chosen family of the faithful remnant. This is the true identity of the remnant Israel. This is the true identity of the true church. That's right. The true church is none other than remnant Israel. But the secret is in the definition of Israel. Israel is not a Jewish-only set, like the first century Judaism's supposedly claimed. Instead, Israel is a family made up of native-born Jews and non-native-born Gentiles. And they both have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and have come under the sanctification of the Spirit and in doing so have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and they are no longer defiled. Isn't that wonderful? We have now, for some of you this is the first time, properly demonstrated a better historical, sociological, theological, and grammatical treatment of Acts chapter 10. And with that, let's draw this section of the commentary to close. This is the end of part C. And stay tuned for part D, where we will look at Paul's persuasion. After Paul, after all, Paul becomes uh, the main mystery man, the mastermind, behind many of the verses that are engineered to support that we're no longer under the law, that the works of the law can no longer save us, and that we no longer need to hold to Jewish superstitions and customs. Uh, to be sure, we're going to look at Romans chapter 14, and then we're going to turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 in our quest to uncover what is food, what is not, and why. Stick around for the final um, podcast of Parashat Shmini.